Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking to Felix Gillette and John Koblen, the authors of the book It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. The book is terrific. I read it in basically one go over a weekend. Could not put it down. That's because HBO has a fascinating history. It started as an experiment, a way to get people in New York City to switch from getting their TV over broadcast antennas to the then-new cable system by offering events you'd otherwise need tickets to see. Boxing, plays, movies. That's where the name Home Box Office, or HBO, comes from. But it grew from there in surprising ways. Did you know HBO was a major innovator in satellite distribution? That's how it worked with cable operators around the country. And of course, HBO was a major innovator in programming. The company's taste and style has influenced and shaped culture for a generation now. And most interestingly to me, HBO grew to that success without any real data. The cable companies owned all the subscribers, so HBO's executives and creative leaders made their decisions through instinct and experience. That's very different than today's modern creative landscape. It's even different than today's modern HBO. The amazing thing about HBO is that it stayed true to itself through an absolutely tumultuous set of ownership changes and strategy shifts. If you're a Decoder listener, you probably know about the chaos of AT&T and Time Warner and HBO Max, the sale to Discovery to create Warner Brothers Discovery, but it's actually way twistier than that. Here's Felix trying to go through the entire history. Well, initially it was Time Life. They were the first backers. Then Warner Communications came in. They were merged with Time Inc., which became Time Warner. And then AOL acquired Time Warner. So then it becomes AOL Time Warner. Then eventually AOL gets sold off. It becomes Time Warner again. And then AT&T buys Time Warner, becomes Warner Media. And then... At the end of the book, Discovery comes in, and uh, it's now Warner Brothers Discovery. So, (laughs) there you have it. Usually changes like that would kill a company. It would certainly kill a culture. But somehow HBO is still HBO. Felix and John talk about that whole history, about the shows it produced, like Sex and the City and Game of Thrones, and about what happens next for HBO, which it kind of all depends on if they can make another hit. It's a Really fun conversation. Before we get into the episode, a few disclosures. You can't talk about HBO without talking about Netflix. I am the executive producer of a show on Netflix called The Future Of. 
We made it here at The Verge with Fox Media Studios. It's great. You should go watch it. I'm hopelessly biased in favor of the show we made. The NBC Universal division of Comcast is a minority investor in Vox Media, which is The Verge's parent company. I used to work at AOL Time Warner. I quit to start The Verge. And I own a TV, and I watch one all the time. There's your disclosure. Okay, let's get into the interview. Felix Gillette and John Coblin, authors of the book, It's Not TV. Here we go. Felix Gillette, you're an editor and writer at Bloomberg News. That's correct. And John Coblin, you are a reporter at the New York Times. Hi. Collectively, you're the authors of It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having us. I am really excited about this episode. Loved the book. I am completely obsessed with just whatever is happening with Time Warner, the company that gets passed around from company to company over time. Mm -hmm. It seems like you, if you buy Time Warner, you're doomed, like something very bad has gone on. But HBO <laughs> is this shining jewel that seems to persist regardless of that noise. And I think that's a really interesting thing to unpack. The book does a really good job of that. So thanks for coming on. I also want to commend you. Bloomberg and the Times are pretty fierce rivals. You came together to write a book. <laughs> well, we're longtime buddies. So we, uh, it did take a little smoothing <laughs> over, but worked out well in the end. Uh, it's, we're going to do, we're doing a media episode of the show, but there's a media subplot here, which is you guys had to smooth that over. That's good. Let's start with the beginning of HBO. I think most people listening to Decoder think of HBO as a legacy brand, is this thing that gets passed around that has to make the shift to streaming in the context of Netflix and all this other stuff. But it's actually a much more interesting story. It started out as a, a value add to a local cable system in New York, basically. Take us through the genesis of HBO. Yeah, the early days, I mean, it was basically Charles Dolan who went on to cable vision fame and, you know, owning the New York Knicks and the New York Rangers. It was Dolan's idea originally, and he got back in from Time Life, which at that point was a, you know, magazine empire that was attempting to diversify. Dolan's idea was basically like, you know, I have this, I'm trying to build out the first cable system in lower Manhattan. There's neighborhoods in New York that couldn't get good broadcast television coverage just because of the buildings would block the signals. So they were like, oh, we're going to build cable in the city. It was a huge mess, and it was struggling. It was losing a lot of money. And he was thinking he was on vacation in France, and he thought, what's a way to entice people to actually pay for TV when most people are getting it for free? And he thought, well, you know, maybe if we uh, actually started this thing that, you know, a channel that you would pay for, that you would get Hollywood movies, you would get some sports from Madison Square Garden. Um, and that was kind of its humble origin. And it really did not work for many, <laughs> many, many years and almost died almost immediately. Kind of incredible it survived. What's the turn that made it work in those early cable days? I mean, as Felix put it before, what a novel concept. Pay for a TV network, you know, even going back to the days of the radio, you were expecting this to come into your home for free. But what HBO decided to do was, all right, let's just look at that name, Home Box Office. Let us offer something where a viewer or a subscriber would, they will get access to something that they couldn't get at home, whether that is a movie ticket to a movie that was in movie theaters just a few months earlier, whether that's a boxing match, whether it's a concert or a stand-up special. And HBO started programming these really aggressively in the late 1970s into the early and mid-1980s. 
And that included also making their own original movies as well. And that is sort of the thing that really started to turn and HBO became a viable business by that point. And it was also, you know, it couldn't have happened without this big technological leap forward, which I also thought was really interesting that I didn't know about before we started working on this book, which is that originally, even after they launched HBO for the first couple of years, there was really no way to distribute it around the country. And only with the advent of satellite distributed channels did that happen. And HBO was the first cable channel that made the leap onto satellite. Without that, it would never have been able to reach, you know, subscribers across the country. And that happened in the mid-1970s. And it was really at the point where HBO was about to be put down to death because it just wasn't going anywhere. And at that point, Time Life made one last investment, said, you know what, okay, we're going to rent some space on this new RCA satellite that in theory could beam moving pictures to anybody around the country that put up a little satellite dish. And, you know, they tested it you know, with a Thriller Manila boxing match in the Philippines, and it ended up being this great success. They could, in fact, distribute it around the country. And once they made that leap onto the satellite, uh, everyone else followed. And that was really the advent of all of these MTV, BET, like all these other, you know, Comedy Central, all these other cable channels that we're all so familiar with. They all followed HBO's lead to go onto satellite. So I actually thought that was an utterly fascinating component of the book. A a theme that comes up on Decoder over and over again is how your distribution affects what you make, right? The the content is just always inevitably completely shaped by its distribution method. And what was really interesting to me about that is I, I think in the internet age, we think about distribution as being pretty direct, right? Maybe there's a YouTube in the middle, but there's a creator, there's a viewer, and you know the YouTube algorithm will shape what you make because that's a distribution. But at the end of the day, there's a pretty direct relationship there. That is not what you're describing with HBO and satellite. It's not a direct TV consumer satellite system, right? They're wholesaling out to other cable networks who are effectively their customers who then retail it out to their cable subscribers. So you've got to put up these like huge satellite dishes. You have to invent that whole system. This is a business that doesn't exist. And HBO manages to do that. How do they get through that? Because that's a, a business model innovation. That's a technical, like a very serious technical innovation. Yeah. And it seems like they lost the ability to do that later on. But I'm I'm curious, where did that culture come from in HBO in the beginning? I think they, you know, they made a really smart decision early on, which is that they decided, you know, if we're going to charge people, say, $10 a month to get this channel of Hollywood movies in their home, you know, we're going to split that 50-50 with the cable operator. So anyone that's incentivized to go out, invest $100,000, whatever it was, to buy a big satellite receiver and then wire it into people's homes, if you're going to do that, here's something else you can offer them. Besides just like what you're going to see on broadcast television, here's a channel of Hollywood movies. It's It was something else they could sell customers, get them into the cable ecosystem when it was really a new concept to pay for TV, and they would get to keep half the money. And that really made HBO something that these nascent cable operators really wanted to sell to their customers. And it also created this interesting dynamic that played out for the next several decades where HBO was removed from the customer, right? They were a wholesaler. They never had a direct relationship with the customers. And that was good and bad in many ways and really shaped the network's history all throughout and up to the day of, you know, 
when the streaming era was born. And we saw that play out in several other interesting ways. And the good of it is because you don't know anything about your subscriber, really, you don't know that much about them. HBO's executives basically just had to wing it. They had to decide, okay, here's what we think is good. We think they want this George Carlin special. We think they want to see Robin Williams. We think that they want this movie about the uh, Exxon Valdez disaster. And by trusting on their own core instincts, it really helped influence HBO's programming efforts throughout the 1980s. I think this is a good time to bring up Netflix. I don't want to start talking about HBO versus Netflix quite yet. But what you're describing is a culture of sort of creativity, unbound, artistic, subjective decision making. And I just want to mention Netflix here, which is a totally data driven organization, right? Like the HBO culture came up in a very different way, whereas Netflix, you know, you get three episodes, they look at the streaming numbers and they cancel your second season before you even started. HBO is saying, here's a group of executives. We, we trust them to make cultural decisions. Yeah, and I think like when we got into the book, and even really from the beginning, we realized that this would be an amazing opportunity, not just to contrast these two different companies, like a New York-based company, a California-based company, the cable and satellite era with the streaming era, but also exactly what you mentioned, you know, a company like Netflix that was so, from its very origin, direct-to-consumer, and really like using the internet to figure out Let's look at the data. Let's look at patterns. Even, you know, before streaming even happened, when they were just mailing out the, you know, the DVDs from you by mail, they were looking at all your choices that you made through their website. What did you want to watch? What time of year was it? You know, all those patterns. And that was what was guiding them. And it is such an incredible contrast to HBO, which never had any data on customers and could never <laughs> rely on anything. And, uh, you know, had to come up with some other way of figuring out, you know, what it was that people would watch. And they did. They, over the course of several decades, created this very instinctive way of, of trusting artists and really not worrying at all about data and any signals in the marketplace. So it is part of the book that I thought was so fun is, is contrasting those two different methods and those two different institutions and the, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of both models. That piece of the puzzle where their customers are the cable networks, that creates a lot of opportunities, right? Netflix, uh, HBO gets really good at selling to those networks. Those networks get really good at selling to the customers. It also creates this blind spot. HBO doesn't really know its viewers. And it kind of creates another pretty major blind spot, which is there's just like a lot of boobs on HBO at the beginning because they think only men are going to buy cable. And that seems like it, it has maybe diminished, but it's it's a part of HBO's culture that I actually want to start at the beginning and trace it to that lack of data, which created some enduring cultural opportunities for HBO, right? It created the creative culture of HBO, but it also created this, this pretty massive blind spot. Yeah. I think like in the beginning, as they were trying to figure out, well, what is it we're going to put on the air in addition to Hollywood movies? And they were trying to figure out what the format was and what the mix was. You know, one of the early executives, uh, this guy, Michael Fuchs, who was the head of program in the early days and became CEO of HBO, he had this idea, and again, it wasn't really based on data. It was just his own sort of reading of the landscape that the broadcast networks were very focused on 
female viewers. And his idea was, well, they're ad supported and commercials, you know, uh, commercial sponsors want to reach women and their households. They want to sell them household goods. So if you look across the whole landscape, it's slightly skewed towards female viewers. And because the broadcast networks are so powerful, this is the era of ABC, CBS, NBC, you know, they had to figure out, well, what can we do differently? I mean, their whole idea of HBO was basically counter-programming against the networks. And one idea was that, okay, if they're skewing their programming towards women, then we're going to, you know, focus on men and we're going to do things that will attract male viewers. And that idea was very explicit at the beginning. And so HBO's original programming mix included things like late night documentaries that had tons of sex in them. Real sex was the franchise eventually uh, involved boxing, which the broadcast networks were kind of growing wary of because of the violence. And yet it involved a lot of female nudity. And in those early days, you know, there was a code word inside of HBO for essentially more female nudity. And, you know, you, these writers and producers of shows would get a script back and say, you yeah, know, it's a great script. We really like it. But could it include a little more cable edge? <laughs> and, and that was the code word. And the idea was, yeah, it was kind of pandering to uh, male viewers. And they could also include things that you couldn't see on broadcast television. So, yeah, nudity, bad language, violence. And in the early days, they, HBO's early original programming was just kind of like littered with that stuff. And it turns out that like that alone wasn't really enough to create great programming. The book is very much structured sort of era by era of HBO. And every era of HBO has its set of signature shows one era that I think breaks away from this legacy of very male HBO is the Sex and the City era, when that was HBO's dominant product. How do they make the turn from, all right, we need more cable edge to attract male heads of household to buy this product, to actually what we are known for is Carrie Bradshaw? In the spirit of winging it, it was basically an accident. So <laughs> HBO in the mid-1990s, Demi Moore, who at that point was at the height of her celebrity, she wanted to produce a movie about abortion. It was called If These Walls Could Talk. It was going to be unflinchingly pro-choice, but it was going to examine abortion through three different periods of American history. The 1950s, the 1970s, and then what was then present day, the mid-1990s. She had originally made the deal to do that the TV movie with TNT. And TNT got skittish just as they, as they were about to begin production because they're like, ugh, our advertisers might not like this pro-choice abortion movie. And again, it's the mid-1990s. It's the height of the culture wars at that point, and abortion is a red-hot topic. So HBO, once they heard this, they swooped in and they said, we'll make it. And they did not think that their mostly male viewers were going to stampede to come and watch a movie about abortion they wanted Demi Moore on their airwaves. And the cast also included Sissy Spacek and Cher. So this was just like a win-win. Why not? Let's do it. Then it aired, and then the ratings came in the next day, and it was the highest ratings HBO had ever seen for an original production. HBO executives were floored. They were like, wait, <laughs> are there female viewers out there who are watching <laughs> HBO who want to watch a show or movie about the female experience? What is out there right now? And what was out there, Darren Starr, a former top producer on Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place, he was shopping a project with Candace Bushnell, which was adapting her book, which was a series of columns that she wrote for the New York Observer called Sex in a City. 
within 10 weeks of If These Walls Could Talk debuting, HBO made a deal to do Sex in the City. This is like another theme that comes up on Decoder all the time, which is data can only tell you about the past. Like The data that HBO had would have never told them that these things would be successful in the future. How did the culture change around the sudden influx of data, both from Nielsen ratings, but also from the internet. Did, did anything happen inside of HBO to make it more expansive? Yeah, I mean, I think the issue of data and, and how that was going to be used, I mean, I think one way it changed HBO a lot was that it was actually through a misunderstanding, which is like in 2000, when the internet was taking off, AOL came in and you know acquired Time Warner famously disastrous merger of cultures at the time was the biggest merger in American business history. And part of what was driving that weirdly was, you know, AOL wanting more information on customers themselves. And I think one of the funny stories we tell in the book is like, you know, it took a long time for the merger to go through regulatory issues. And then when it finally got done and it was consummated and AOL managers were showing up, we tell the story of the first time they kind of arrive at HBO's sales and marketing offices and they come in, they're very excited. You know, we love HBO. It's this incredible brand. It's got all these customers that love it. So first thing we want to know is like, can you just give us all your customer (laughs) data? And everyone's kind of looking around this conference room nervously, like customer data. What are these guys talking about? You just paid a hundred billion dollars. Like, I hate to break it to you, but like, we don't have that information. That's the cable operators are who have that. That was, I think, one of the fundamental misunderstandings that somehow there would be, you know, synergy. You could use HBO's knowledge of what customers wanted with the internet. And that was going to turn into this incredible vortex of new synergy in this new world of the internet and entertainment. And- I'm sorry, vortex of synergy is actually like a great <laughs> phrase. That's like, it- it's perfectly <laughs> accurate to what happens. And just the whole thing was such a mess and it obviously didn't work out. And that story has been told a lot of times. We tell it through the HBO lens, but it did leave this incredible hangover within Time Warner. And I think that's one thing our book kind of that, that became apparent that was really interesting to me that I had no idea beforehand is just like that disastrous experience of for all of these television executives within Time Warner at HBO and all these cable brands that had to deal with these AOL managers. They had this famous culture clash. Eventually, you know, the stock price craters, everyone gets tossed out. They say, okay, the, the AOL guys did not know what they were doing. It was a total <laughs> mess, but like, we're going to go back to letting the TV people run this company. And that was great, except that it really left them with this incredible distaste for the idea that people from the internet knew what the hell they were talking about, <laughs> right? And the problem with that is that, you know, the lesson of like, oh, the internet is full of phonies and doesn't matter was really not a great lesson to be learning for a huge media company in the 2000s, right? Because with each passing year, you know, the internet was becoming more important. The technology was getting better in streaming. Time Warner, I think in many ways, got left behind because, you know, we call it in the book Internet PTSD. But it was like that experience with AOL was so bad that they just like rejected anything in the coming years that was like, oh, maybe you should be investing in streaming technology and data acquisition and, you know, understanding what new modes of distribution are coming down the pipeline. Because at some point, 
it is going to happen. And that was a really fascinating dynamic to watch play out. We have to take a break, but when we come back, we're talking about Netflix. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back. It's time to talk about Netflix. Before the break, Felix, you were talking about the internet PTSD at Warner. The distribution is changing. Netflix is kind of the classic disruptor here. Mm -hmm. They're mailing DVDs to people. They start their streaming service. It was not very good. It had no original shows, really. It had no movies, really. But everybody looked at it and said, okay, that's going to happen, right? This is just going to get better. And HBO looked at it and said, no, we're good. Like, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. But they were cheaper and they were more convenient. And over time, they were obviously going to display. This is just a very classic disruption tale. What happened there? Well, even before Netflix launches the streaming service in 2007, there was this incredible moment in like 2005 where there was a group of HBO business development executives on the West Coast. And they were watching Netflix And this is the era where Netflix was really locked in this battle with Blockbuster. Many people have forgotten this particular era, but Blockbuster, in addition to kind of ruling the home video market, they saw Netflix coming up. At one point, they launched their own basically Netflix rival service where you could go to Blockbuster and get DVDs sent to you via mail. And they placed it lower than Netflix. And it was like, you know, people were like, oh, is Netflix on the ropes? The HBO executives were watching all of this, and they thought, you know what? That little company in California, they're pretty good with customers. They they have a really good direct relationship with customers. 
why don't we buy them, right? Like, you know, they have the thing we don't have. We have this whole huge wholesale distribution model through the cable operators. But if we bought Netflix, we would have this direct relationship with the customers. We'd control another window for movies. And it would be a great combination of services. And so, you know, 2006, they put together this 35-page proposal they went out, met with their bosses in New York, and they said, here's all the reasons we should buy Netflix. And they basically couldn't even get through the presentation before their bosses said, are you kidding me? Netflix? What's this thing? It's worth $1.5 billion? Like, that's crazy. It's not worth that. We've seen this with AOL. This thing's going away. Like, get out of here. Like, just throw that thing away. It was really like, you know, this remarkable missed opportunity. It's fun to think of the counterfactual history of what the streaming wars might have been like if, you know, Time Warner had acquired Netflix, which again was worth, you know, I think it was $1.4 billion market cap at the time when they wrote this proposal. And AOL, Time Warner had a, you know, a, a fund that easily could have uh, paid for that. And of course, if they had acquired it, they probably would have screwed it up, right? Like it wouldn't have been great. But that's kind of like the classic innovator's dilemma, which is like they were so wedded to this model of the cable satellite and they were making so much money that, you know, in truth, I think Comcast at that point, you know, was like a quarter of their business, like, you know, billions of dollars of revenue every year. And they were worried, like, if we even make a little move towards going direct to consumer and we cut out the middlemen, we cut out the cable operators like Comcast, they're going to be pissed and they could just shut down their marketing of HBO and immediately our churn rate's going to go up. We're going to start losing customers. It's not worth the risk. So like, let's not even like entertain that idea. And so it is kind of, you know, again, an amazing classic innovators dilemma of this company being wedded to the previous technology and not being able to take advantage of these opportunities that people inside the company saw. It was not surprising. I mean, they really did see the opportunity early on. It really just comes back again and again, how much your distributors have power over you in the HBO store, in the Warner Media story, right? Mm -hmm. Here, HBO can't really do HBO Go because Comcast is going to get mad. Mm -hmm. Later on, Jason Kalar is going to try to go direct to consumer on HBO Max and all the movie theaters, and Hollywood gets mad. Mm -hmm. And that's his distribution. Like, that's the money that everyone has kind of raised to accept. HBO is always, like, in the middle of that. Like, when it's making shows, how is it attracting all of this talent over and over again, even as it's kind of like always at war with its distribution or always trying to move on to the next kind of distribution. Because if you're a top producer, you're a top writer in Hollywood, you're not paying so much attention to the distribution challenges. You're paying attention to the executives who you've known for years. HBO has always really prided itself on cultivating a great writer or a great producer and having them come back again and again. I mean, use Mike White as an example. You know, he had a show on HBO that was a cult classic 10 years ago. They canceled it, wasn't watched, and yet they always checked in with him. What are you working on? What are you thinking about? So then by time COVID hits and HBO is like, okay, productions everywhere are completely ruined. We need a show that can be done quick, cheap, and preferably done over Zoom, so we can just get it on the air in four or five months, went to Mike White saying, do you have a Zoom show? 
Mike White's like, let me think about it. And then was just like, I'm not doing a Zoom show. That sounds so depressing. <laughs> but what's also depressing is sitting at home watching CNN all day with terrible headlines about the pandemic. Maybe I can come up with an idea for a show where there could be a COVID bubble. That's when he suddenly thought about, let's do a show at a hotel in Hawaii. The reason HBO went to Mike White is because they knew he's a quick writer. They knew he could work cheap. And he would come up with something. And then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, HBO has the White Lotus. But it was because of the executive's relationship with the talent and vice versa, the talent relationship with the executives. I mean, Mike White, he told us for the book that he had had meetings at Netflix over the years. And he was just like, what is this? This is just like way too weird. Like, I just want my like regular (laughs) HBO people. So that's the reason why HBO has always been, to quote one of the... Uh, producers who we quote in the book is saying always has been a cut above that relationship, that dynamic, right? It, this is classic Hollywood. It's totally relationships based. No one ever says no to anything, right? The door is always open for the next thing. That's weird. Cause HBO is like famously in New York and then they move. And, you know, in the early days, pre-internet, those location differences seem to shape the culture more than you would think. Yeah, I mean, HBO has a New York presence, much more so than any other rival studio or network. But they do have HBO's programming team is located in Los Angeles. The New York operation where that was best deployed, they didn't have to pay attention to the Hollywood trades. The New York operation, all the top executives in New York, particularly Richard Plepler, who had grown up as this you know real East Coast guy, you know, worked in the U.S. Senate for a few years. Before he came to HBO, worked on publications like The Atlantic as a PR person. He wanted to cultivate relationships with the New York Press Corps and the Washington Press Corps. And that sort of elevated HBO throughout the 1990s, throughout the 2000s, and throughout the 2010s. I mean, Felix and I used to joke about this, but, you know, anytime we went to an HBO premiere party, let's say five or six years ago, I would see no fewer than 20 or 25 reporters and editors at the New York Times, 23 (laughs) or 24 of whom did not cover television, not cover (laughs) culture, but they were just there and they were invited because maybe there will be a time when Maureen Dowd wants to dedicate a Sunday column to a new HBO original series or a new HBO original movie. So it was sort of this bi-coastal element that HBO had to it, where you had this amazing programming team in LA, and you had these incredible communications officials and marketing people in New York that really helped bring HBO to another level. So the the core of that, and I, I think this is really kind of the, what I think of as the Plepler era, right, is HBO is a hits business. There's no brand there, really, right? It just stands for there's going to be another incredible show that will last for however many seasons. And when that's over, we'll just roll you into the next thing. But there's no formula or system to make that next thing. They're just taking these shots. And it feels like Plepler positioned himself. He, he, I've watched Richard Plepler hold court in New York City before. But he positioned <laughs> himself as the ringleader of this fantastical army of creatives that would just do this over and over again. Was there a system or was it pure chaos and they just got lucky over and over again? I think the system that they came up with, you have to go back to the really, I think the most pivotal 
change in HBO's history was that it took place in the mid-90s. Because if you think about the original formula, home HBO stood for home box office. And the original idea was like anything that you would have to buy a ticket for in the real world will show you at home. So initially it was like, you know, sporting events like boxing, Hollywood movies, music concerts, comedy performances. They didn't make much TV, like classic TV in the early days because they were thinking, well, the TV networks give it away for free. That's not our thing. We're giving you something in your house that you would have to buy otherwise. And in the mid-90s, they finally decided, okay, We've taken this about as far as it can go. We really want people coming back week after week after week. We need to start doing episodic television in a really serious way. When they did that and they made that decision, they had to think, okay, well, how can we do episodic television that's different than serialized shows that are different than what's on broadcast networks? And I think the most pivotal decision they made in the history, the formula that HBO came up with was like, yeah, before we given things like female nudity and bad language and violence that you couldn't see on TV, but that wasn't enough to make these shows really, really great. And what they came up with over time was like, well, you know, we can't offer these seasoned TV show writers and creators, like, we can't offer them as much money as broadcast television, but we can offer them a level of creative freedom that they could never have on broadcast television. So their pitch really in the early days was like, okay, bring your show to HBO. You're not going to have a bunch of commercial sponsors looking over your shoulders. You're not going to have a ton of network executives, you know, telling you to make all the characters more likable (laughs) and make the subtext more obvious. Like all the rules that you've always butted your head up against in broadcast television, you can toss those out and do whatever you want on HBO's air. And for people that had spent their careers making shows in broadcast television, like Darren Starr, like John mentioned earlier, you know, had done Melrose Place, had done 90210, but he was so sick of the rules of broadcast television. And he was so sick of these fights with the network executives of, can we do an, you know, an episode about uh, teenage pregnancy? Can we do one about abortion? No, it's too controversial. The appeal of coming over to HBO And making a show where you didn't have all of those restrictions was incredibly appealing. When Darren started Sex and the City, he didn't think it was going to be any kind of commercial success. He was thinking of it as like an independent film project, basically. (laughs) And, you know, but it ended up being incredibly powerful. And from the time that they decided they were going to kind of take off the guardrails and that was going to be their sales pitch and their formula for these Hollywood creators, they had this incredible run. I mean, it was, you know, Sex and the City... Oz, uh, The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, The Wire. And if you look at all of those shows, what do they all have in common? They all have in common these really seasoned veteran creators who would come from that broadcast television world, spent decades learning those rules, and then came over to HBO to break them. And in some ways, I think that still is really the HBO method, which is like, we'll give you the creative license, we'll give you the creative freedom, and we'll give you the money to make your project and leave you alone. And that's incredibly powerful, weirdly. So uh, we've been talking about Netflix as the competitor. I think that makes a lot of sense. People understand it. There is this other period, though. I don't know where you want to say peak TV began, but where HBO's competitors were other cable networks. They were basically making the same pitch, right? And so you end up with Mad Men on AMC or Breaking Bad. You end up with Showtime doing billions, having an incredible run over there. 
how does HBO feel about those competitors? And do they have the same kind of challenges as HBO? Because it seems like the Showtimes and the AMCs shaped HBO much more than Netflix. And now we're in kind of the Netflix versus HBO era. I mean, I think you can actually trace the origins to peak TV to like 2010. That's when you already see these climbing, scripted, adult television series, that that sort of body count rising and rising and rising each year. But 2010 is when Netflix was still just licensing other people's content, but everybody was showing a willingness to license them. Disney was giving them ABC's Lost. Mad Men was beginning to show up on Netflix. And Netflix really, really desired the the poobah, the the top game in town. They wanted HBO's content. <laughs> and they knew asking for The Sopranos or Sex in a City would probably be a hard ask. So they went lower. Uh, the, the Netflix's Ted Sarandos, then the chief content officer, he said, what about Mr. Show? What about Six Feet Under? What about Deadwood? And made a huge offer, like a ton of money, which was not only supposed to like get HBO sweating, but also get Alan Ball's agents, the creator of Six Feet Under, get their agents into fits saying you have to make this deal. But HBO refused. HBO saw Netflix even then as a rival, so they wouldn't give them their content to put on their you know nascent streaming service. They just they didn't want that HBO logo on it. And that is right around the time when Netflix was like, oh, so if HBO is not going to sell us this stuff, when are the other uh, traditional Hollywood studios going to wise up and realize they shouldn't be selling us our stuff? That's not going to be good because then we're going to have nothing. We're going to have to go out and start making our own stuff. And it was a few weeks later that they had the deal to make House of Cards, which stunned Hollywood. So simultaneous to that, yes, you have FX, you have Showtime, you have AMC, you have other networks that are doing the HBO thing, gritty anti-heroes, subversive TV. It was a tough transition for HBO because HBO, for so many years, for 15 years, they realized they were kind of the only game in town. And then all of a sudden, if it's HBO versus somebody else, they're not going to choose HBO. They're going to choose FX or AMC. So it was a difficult transition. But look where we are 10 years later. Just in the last few weeks, AMC... You know, they basically have conceded that their original programming ambitions have to come back. They're laying off a lot of people. And very recently, Showtime, 47 years old, is no longer Showtime. It is now Paramount Plus with Showtime. That is a diminishment of a fabled brand that is stunning. And when you have that in the context of HBO currently broadcasting The Last of Us, a huge hit, on the heels of White Lotus, a huge hit, on the heels of House of the Dragon, a huge hit. It's really stunning to see what has become of HBO's rivals of just a decade ago. They're starting to disappear. All right, let me make the counter argument to what I almost always say. I can't believe I'm going to say this. Maybe all the mergers were good, <laughs> right? Like, I, is that is that the lesson here? Like, I don't know if I believe that. I feel like I have to say it just to make the middle of the podcast really exciting. But, you know, these other rivals... They did not get swept up. They were not the crown jewels of these gigantic media mergers that basically killed the host and <laughs> had to move on, right? They try to be independent businesses. Like, I'm looking at, okay, HBO versus Showtime versus FX versus whatever. They mm-hmm. have the same business model. Yep. Netflix comes so that the game is, like, fixed, right? Like, 
you're you're kind of playing on the same board. Netflix comes in with a bunch of VC money, a totally different business model, no cable systems to make happy. They flip the board. Everything gets radically more expensive because Netflix will just shovel money at people. Mm -hmm. And only HBO emerges from that. I would not say victorious, but intact. Yeah, I think for all the, you know, crazy culture clash that happened when AT&T acquired Time Warner, and I think all the bludgeoning that went inside that company, the one thing that did come out of that that they needed to do for a long time was they broke down all those barriers between the different brands within Time Warner. They got all the programming in one place, and they did create a streaming service that for all its glitches in the early days, for all its problems, has an enormous library and you know has the scale that can compete with Netflix and Disney, at least in the United States. Overseas, I think, is another matter. But I mean, I think if you didn't become part of a huge platform, then I think you really are left out. And I think, I mean, probably the best example of that now is AMC Networks, which, you know, for a while there with, you know, Mad Men, Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, you know, was really had this moment where it's like, oh, they're, you know, on the same footing as HBO and FX and these other channels in the cable world, but they never made the transition to a big streaming service. And so, like John said, now they're kind of withering on the vine. So, you know, for all the negatives that we could go through that happened with HBO under AT&T, the positive is that there is a big giant streaming service called HBO Max, and you can get the entire library of HBO's history now, more or less, streaming in your home. Can I push back on both of you? Um, yes, I can't believe I can't believe we're going into the AT and T deal on a positive. Note. What, please, what happened, please push back. Um, by the skin of their teeth, HBO is still going <laughs> and doing what HBO did. By the skin of their teeth, if HBO had not been on the role that it has been on for the last three or four years in terms of programming, let's say that they, you know. Every network usually goes into some sort of swoon. HBO did it, at, you know, around eight, nine, ten years ago, around that time when FX and AMC were running hot. HBO ran a little cold, especially when it came to dramas. HBO has been running hot left and right right now. Had they not, it would have been a lot easier for AT&T to say, just give us more Game of Thrones. Give us another a Sopranos. Give us a Sopranos series. They could be mining HBO for IP the way that so many other media companies are doing. They could have mucked with HBO's business. It is because HBO's programming team has delivered such outstanding results that I think that they have been left alone. And David Zasloff is not immune to this either. If HBO was in a slump and he didn't give a five-year deal to Casey Bloys, HBO's chief content officer currently and for the last seven years, HBO's programming, the surprise hits that just keep coming around the corner, that might not exist. It really is the the original programming executives at HBO. They are the people who are keeping this going. And if they disappear, HBO is in a world of trouble. Is that like a it's hard to measure a thing that you can't take away? Like, if not for that pressure and that sense of existential dread that if we don't hit another home run, this whole thing comes crashing down. Do you think they perform at that level? I, you can never really tell, right? It's hard to say, but it is interesting that throughout HBO's entire history, the one constant has been like this 
always some threat of looming disaster hanging <laughs> over their heads. I mean, it really is. Like in the 1980s, it was the first thing was the Hollywood studios all teamed up and they said, you know, why are we, why are we letting this middleman creator take all this value out of our ecosystem? We'll just create our own HBO service and we'll call a premiere and we'll all feed it our movies and HBO will die. Luckily for HBO, the Department of Justice intervened and said, you know, there's antitrust issues and they shot Can it down. Can you imagine such a thing happening in 2023? So that was, and then the VCR came along and people were like, why would you go to HBO to watch a home movie? Now you can just go to the blockbuster video and get a, you know, get something. That almost, you know, that was a huge threat that people thought that was going to kill HBO. You know, the Time Warner AOL deal, which we already mentioned, people thought that was going to kill it. The advent of streaming, that was going to kill it. AT&T was going to kill it. You know, the latest is, you know, the, the cost of, you know, Wall Street losing their faith in streaming services. That's going to kill it. It the whole time it has been like the the threat of death has been hanging over it. So yeah, I mean I think maybe that's part of the key to success. You got to be like yeah. worried that you're going to die. I feel like you could reframe this entire book as like an 80s movie about like a hockey team that has to save the local hockey. <laughs> We need to take one more break. When we come back, we arrive at AT&T. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back. It's the time of the HBO story to talk about AT&T. So I covered AT&T from the tech perspective, where I'm a tech reporter. Mm -hmm. This was stupid on its face. Like, only the people inside of AT&T thought they were making a good decision. I think even Time Warner's management was like, I cannot believe we hoodwinked AT&T into buying this company. <laughs> and the pitch, right, when you boiled it all the way down, when I read the arguments they made in the antitrust case filed by the Trump administration, 
all the way at the bottom was we sell a lot of mid-range Android phones. We're going to preload them with a CNN icon and some like, Game of Thrones clips, and that will keep people from switching to Verizon. And it, it's like, that's your garbage. Your idea is garbage. Like it's openly, first of all, all the people with money, your customers buy iPhones and Apple's not gonna let you do this. And also the people who buy Android phones hate this shit and they delete it. Right. There was no other rationale that I could tell. Right. It was, we're going to merge the pipes and the content and that will keep you from going to our competitor. I think the only other rationale in retrospect that was almost as dumb, but you know, the other idea was, I do think they thought that their stock price was going to get a nice bump out of it. I think they looked at, you know, Netflix and they thought, wow, look, Wall Street loves streaming. Wall Street loves data. <laughs> like, we're just going to buy this thing and like, whoop, like throw it up there. We'll get like, you know, it'll juice our stock price. That obviously did not happen. And I think that contributed to the realization after a couple of years that like, whoops, like we really bought this thing at the very, 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 very peak of the market and overpaid for it. And now we got to like get it off our book somehow. And they offload it to Zaslav. It becomes Warner Brothers Discovery. Mm-hmm. Right after AT&T bought it, it was trying to integrate it. There's a famous town hall meeting between AT&T CEO John Stanky and HBO CEO Richard Plepler. It immediately leaks. Like Plepler looks like he just wants to like run off the stage. <laughs> right. Because he's like, you got to increase the volume of HBO. He's kind of openly threatening the creative culture. Why didn't that have any ripple effects? Like that's the thing that get like AT&T shows up. It's like, all right, we're going to. We're going to do mini Game of Thrones and Android phones. And it just never happens. Like HBO just rejects the the host. Like, how did that how did that happen? Because you just you would expect AT&T to, to kill this thing a lot faster than it was actually ever able to do. And when Felix and I first set out to write this book, it was spring of 2019. And at that point, AT&T had been the stewards of HBO and Time Warner for eight or nine months. And I think we thought they were going to kill it. And that was one of the reasons why we set out to write this book. But a couple things happened. AT&T, they mucked with Richard Plepler's, his purview a lot in terms of business affairs, in terms of technology. But the one thing they would not touch was programming. AT&T was terrified of being known (laughs) as the place that killed HBO. So kind of miraculously, They left the programming department alone, despite Randall Stevenson publicly talking about mini Game of Thrones. They never acted on it. And then to quote Frank Rich, a top producer at HBO, and then they were gone. I think there was a (laughs) lot of fear within HBO's offices, especially in those months leading up to the announcement that they were spinning off the company and going to merge it with Discovery, which that is May of 2021. There was a lot of fear in a month or two or three leading up to that. Jason Kylar is starting to say things that are a little weird. Like, it suddenly seemed like AT&T wanted to get in there and wanted to get under the hood. But it was a very short period that they owned the place. So, yeah, HBO rejected the host, but also uh, the parasite just didn't go after HBO's bread and butter, which is its programming. It's funny to think of AT&T as both the host and the parasite in this metaphor, and it's perfectly (laughs) apt, by the way. And I think also, I mean, HBO was lucky that AT&T had so many other problems to deal with. Like, first of all, the regulatory issues and getting targeted by Trump and getting caught up in this whole antitrust suit, which delayed the acquisition for a couple of years. 
then there were all these, you know, the advent of 5G and AT&T feeling like they had to build out a new network and put tons of money into it. So they had that issue. There was the issue of their dividend and continuing to keep that dividend up and investors being like, you better not be like wasting my dividend on that little Hollywood <laughs> adventure over there. You know, there were so many things going on, the pandemic, like, I almost feel like, HBO just luckily ran out the clock because, you know, the AT&T bosses were just fixated on one disaster after another. The, you know, the direct TV acquisition, which preceded the Time Warner acquisition, which was just colossal mess over there. And so I think they were kind of protected by all the other carnage going on. I always say on the show that a workable antitrust policy in America is to just make it illegal for AT&T to buy anything. And then you'll probably be fine. <laughs> like, it'll probably just work itself out. Um, AT&T did do one thing that we should talk about really briefly. They mm-hmm. went through a succession of heads of Warner Media in different structures, and they finally settled on Kalar. And he made the big sweeping decision to shut down the movies in the pandemic, going to theaters, and put it all on HBO Max, which really kick-started the service in a, in a real way. And then everyone hated him and they sold it to Discovery and he got he got axed. But it feels like he plays this pivotal short-term role where he does the hard thing that everyone hates and then he he just gets knifed. But that was the thing that needed to happen. Yeah, I mean, it gave them a nice pop after they got off to a very slow start. I mean, HBO Max was born in like right in the belly of the beast of the pandemic, May of 2020. By the end of that year, uh, Kyle had been in charge for a few months he decides to release all those movies on HBO Max, and it gave it a nice pop, but it's funny. I mean, what is the legacy of Kylar at this point beyond giving it that initial pop? Because Discovery's come in and has basically undone everything that he did, which is, you know, we love the theater. We love the theatrical window and not prizing, let's say, you know, original projects that are solely for HBO Max. So unquestionably, one of the reasons why Euphoria, according to HBO's estimates, has more than 20 million viewers, that is because Jason Kylar did help supercharge the service. But, you know, it's sort of a, in my opinion, I'm not sure how long-lasting this legacy is because, again, everything that he set out to do is being undone. Felix, your thoughts? Well, I also think that, you know, it was kind of a Hail Mary pass that w- that had to be done because when you look at the launch of HBO Max, you know, compare it to the launch of Disney Plus, right? Like Disney Plus, they launch, they have the Mandalorian, they have like something like a, a new Star Wars franchise you got to go see. They got like a Baby Yoda. People are like passing around Baby Yoda pictures on the internet. You're like, what is going on? I got to go check out this Disney Plus thing. I got a Baby Yoda. Like HBO Max launched and you're just like, it was like crickets. It was like, what? It was like a, they had like an origami show, like kids making origami. It was like Perry one of their Mason. Launches. Yeah. yeah. They just, know that um, one of the first times I opened it, their recommendation algorithm was like, do you want to watch Head of the Class? Which is a show from the 80s <laughs> that like professor in the high school. I was yeah. like, I kind of do, but this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> and part of it was the pandemic, right? Part of it was they were supposed to have like a friends reunion. They had, you know, maybe they were going to have a J.J. Abrams thing. But it's like, how do you launch an HBO Max streaming service without like your Game of Thrones sequel or prequel at launch time, right? Like they kind of screwed up that whole thing. And yeah, it was part because of the regulatory challenge and part because of the pandemic. So there were other problems, but like 
they were just so desperate for something to get life onto that service that, yeah, I think Kyler made the right call in the end, which was like Project Popcorn is like, well, you know, the movie theaters are still half open. People are still worried about seeing movies in the theater. Like, let's just take the whole Warner Brothers slate for a year and just throw it on the service. And, you know, I think, it, yeah, in the retrospect, that was a smart move, but it was a smart move following, you know, a series of dumb moves that they were even in that position where they had to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's putting it, that's very generous that it was a series of like, <laughs> catastrophically stupid moves. Let's wrap up with Discovery. HBO is a storied brand and gets passed from owner to owner. It is now in the hands of Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zaslav, who... He seems like a cost cutter. He seems he, he seems like he has a vision, which is more than can be said for most of HBO's previous owners. That vision is going to take it in some new direction. What is this new company? How should we think about it? I mean, it's a company saddled with a lot of debt. It's a company that is merging a enormous library of nonfiction, a combination of nature documentaries and really trashy reality shows with the huge Warner Brothers library. And they're saying that it's totally complimentary. And when we come up with <laughs> our big streaming service, they've got the fiction, we've got the nonfiction, and this thing, you know, it can't lose. The jury is very much out on that, but it is a company saddled with a lot of debt. They cut a lot of jobs last year. And there was a lot of anxiety in the HBO hallways, I would say, in the last two, three months of last year of, uh-oh, like, is this really going to impact us? And since the beginning of January... The Warner Brothers Discovery stock has gone up. It went down a lot last year. It's up a lot this year. It's up something like 30 to 40 percent. And there is very much this narrative that they're putting out, which is we've turned the page. We did all the gnarly, difficult work last year. And now Casey Bloys and Channing Dungey, the head of Warner Brothers Television Studio, you guys do what you need to do. Go out there and create great stories. So there's a little bit more optimism within HBO right now, but it's a lot of debt. It's $50 billion of debt that this company has. And something's going to have to give again involving that. So we will see what happens. But uh, they are trying to put out a more positive story. You know, now it's chapter two in the WBD future. So this is as a company, right? This whole thing is still kind of addicted to declining cable revenues. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, all of those, all those discovery channels are cable channels. They all have to move to streaming do they know that they have to make this big disruptive shift or is it still we're trying to thread the needle while we build the new thing? I think they're taking a less radical streaming first approach in some ways than their predecessors than, than Kyler. I mean, I think part of it is that, you know, for so long, Wall Street was just all about in the home entertainment space was just like growth at any cost, right? Like Netflix, we just want you to get more customers, take more market share, don't worry about your profits, you know, and that era kind of came to a crashing halt last year. You know, Netflix's stock went plummeting. And, you know, the new mantra from Wall Street is we want profits. We want, we, we don't, you know, care as much about the just gaining market share for the sake of gaining market share. And I think, you know, that's difficult because, you know, particularly with Warner Brothers Discovery, the U.S. market is 
quite saturated in terms of streaming services. I mean, you may pick up some customers here or there, depending on what, you know, if you have a hit show. But, like, the big challenge now is, like, overseas, right? Like, the game has shifted overseas, and, like, you know, that's where you can pick up a lot of customers. That's where the growth is going to come from. But, you know, Netflix has such a huge head start overseas. I mean, they've spent, you know, the past decade investing in offices around the world, cultivating local programming communities, building infrastructure, building that brand that means something in Asia, means something in Central America. Warner Brothers Discovery is really far behind that world, and it's going to cost a lot of money to launch those efforts to try and build that brand up for their streaming service overseas. And how do you do that in the short term when you have $50 billion debt, when your share price is still not anywhere close to where it was a year ago? And, uh, you know, the pressures, I mean, they say like they've moved through this gnarly phase. But like the the reality of it is that they're going to have to figure out ways to optimize the revenues domestically in order to make those investments overseas. And that's going to mean probably license more of their content to other streaming services. It's going to mean being a little bit more ruthless about how they invest in programming and different genres. So I don't think they're in any way out of the woods. All right. Let me end with a kind of a big think decoder question, which is, if we were having this conversation about any other brand that was this storied, we would have talked about the founder like 5,000 times by now, right? If we were talking about Netflix, we would have talked about Reed Hastings a million times by now. If we were talking about Meta, we would have talked about Zuckerberg a thousand times by now. On and on it goes. We have not really talked about that many characters inside of HBO, right? There's some heads of programming. There's some people who've led it. Uh, there's a lot of ancillary characters. HBO is a brand that is primarily a culture, right? It's this culture that persists. It's very creative. There are a lot of characters in your book. There's some very important stories about accountability for those characters' actions in the book. People should go read it. Taking one step back, the secret to HBO is this culture that persists regardless of all these change. Where does that come from and, and how does it persist so effectively? I mean, it's kind of the amazing thing. You're right. We've mentioned Richard Plepler in passing. We've mentioned Casey Bloys in passing. I don't even know if we've mentioned anybody else. But <laughs> what's funny, consider HBO's current crop of uh, programming executives. These are folks who have been there some 15 to 20 years, all the top executives. So that means they've only been at HBO since, let's say, 2004. That means they weren't there when The Sopranos got programmed or Sex and the City got programmed or The Wire, Six Feet Under, or Oz. But the thing that it sort of separates HBO from certainly a Netflix or an Amazon or an AMC or whatever, you name any network you want, all those executives who have been there, though they weren't there at the beginning, they were all trained by the people who were. There's really been, if you isolate what HBO's programming department has looked like over the last four decades, there's basically been two generations. There was like the mid-1980s to mid-2000s group and the mid-2000s group to present day. So when you have that level of continuity and through repetition and through seeing one genre of show after the next, you start to learn what the HBO playbook is. And this is why... When you are a producer or a writer and you get within that HBO fold, it's very difficult to leave because so you get used. Yes, HBO will give you a ton of money and a lot of creative freedom. That was the promise to those Darren stars in the mid 1990s. But there is also an editorial direction. 
You know, it's like a really good magazine editor where, you know, they're not going to gum up the works. They're not going to destroy your copy, but they will give that good suggestion or two that will just like unlock the world for you. This is what so many writers have said. So that is really, you know, yes, HBO does not have a Reed Hastings or Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs, but they've kept that culture because there really have just been a couple generations of these programming executives. All right. Well, that's as good of a place to end it. I got to go think about how to become a more effective magazine editor now. Uh, John, Felix, this was great. Hope to have you back soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks again to Felix Gillette and John Koblen for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter for as long as that continues. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like Decoder, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton DeSimone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.